Welcome, everybody, to the fourth episode of our limited series, Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Kyle from the podcast Audio Judo, and I'm here to introduce this episode. But first, I want to mention that both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're interested in any genre of music, music history, or just want to discover great new music, Pantheon has got at least one podcast that you'll love. Visit www.pantheonpodcast.com to see the entire catalog. On this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, Chris talks about another jazz legend, Charles Mingus. Hearing the nickname The Angry Man of Jazz and was feared by some for his temper, but respected by most because of his refusal to compromise his musical integrity. Here's Chris with the full story. Do excuse me, Mr. Mingus. I can see you're awfully busy, but may I ask a question or two for my paper? For instance, what do you feel about jazz? Man, just listen, it's all there. No, actually, they'd like to know what you think in England. Just a few words. Well, I can tell you how I feel tonight anyway. Up to now, I don't think nobody has given nothing important since Bird died, except his contemporaries who were overlooked at the time. Monk, Max, Rollins, Bud, others, maybe even me. Bird was playing then what they're calling avant-garde today putting major sevenths with minor sevenths, playing a fourth wave from the key, things like that, and people would say he squeaked. Well, now they hear what those squeaks meant. All this freeform business isn't new. Dropping bar lines and all. I was doing it, and Duke before me, and Jelly Roll before that. I wrote What Love back in 42, and played it with Buddy Collette and Britt Woodman, and just recently some horn men looked at it and said it couldn't be played. Too freaky, too hard. That passage is from Charles Mingus's memoir, Beneath the Underdog. It's a little difficult to pinpoint exactly what year he might have said this in the book. His time is never really addressed, but it's probably around 1959 or 1960. It takes place late in the memoir and is one of the few times Charles Mingus presents his views on jazz itself. Throughout the book, he talks about the greatness of Charlie Parker and Art Tatum and a few others. He talks a little bit about how he went from playing cello to double bass. You can sense the joy in the dialogue between musicians. But most of the memoir is framed by a conversation with his psychiatric doctor and is more about his search for love. Now, I'm not a musician. As I said before, I don't understand the relationship a note has with a chord, and I don't know how they all fit in with a key. Flats and minor and major scales mean nothing to me. I don't understand how drummers lock in with the basses, how piano players play both with them and seemingly over them at the same time. I don't know how horn players solo over their rhythm sections, how they listen while they play, and how it all somehow works to create this magic these minor miracles we call songs. I have difficulty sometimes clarifying or recognizing exactly what I hear. Specifically, I don't always think I can hear the bass in songs. In rock music, it's only when the bass is prominently featured and stands out that I can hear what the bass is doing. I have a hard time fully appreciating the role a bassist plays within the context of a group. But the moment I heard Charles Mingus on bass, I recognized a force of nature. His playing is deep and authoritative. It leads from the front. It's primal. It's religious. It's elegant. And it's ecstatic. 
He rarely ever plays just a mere walking bass line, giving the rest of the band a backdrop in which to keep time or a place to jump off from. He gives signals. He prods. He inspires. He demands. If you like bass and music, you have to listen to Mingus. It's almost as simple as that. The first album of his I ever bought is called The Shoes of the Fisherman's Wife. I imagine I bought it as much for the title as I did for any other reason. It's an odd release in Mingus's discography. The title track's full name is actually The Shoes of the Fisherman's Wife are some jive-ass slippers, a song originally released on his last masterpiece from 1971 called Let My Children Hear Music. That album is one of the few times Mingus has a larger ensemble to work with and is an album I highly recommend to you. The other six tracks from The Shoes of the Fisherman's Wife were from an album he recorded in 1959 called Mingus Dynasty. Record companies are kind of weird in how they cobble together releases sometimes. Why did Columbia Records release an album with six tracks from 1959 and one track from 1971? Probably to get someone like me to buy an album because of its title. The album starts off with a song called Slop, which is similar to two other songs he would record in 1959. Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting and Better Get It in Your Soul. All three songs are inspired by Mingus's experience growing up in the church. He whoops and hollers. You hear hand claps urging soloists on. And it's all about catching the spirit. There's another song called Gunslinging Bird on it. Its original title being, If Charlie Parker Were a Gunslinger, There'd Be a Whole Lot of Dead Copycats. There are also two covers of Duke Ellington songs on the album. Mood Indigo, which is a blues, and Things Ain't What They Used to Be. With these songs, you begin to understand the roots of Charles Mingus's music. The church, the playing of Charlie Parker, the blues, and the compositions of Duke Ellington. The tones of his compositions are both earthy and spiritual. You sense a desire to fly and be free. In his compositions, he strives for the sophistication and elegance of Ellington. He strove to present all these elements in his music moving forward. Like Ellington, his greatest instrument may have been the way he played the band members he had at his disposal. If the songs needed the color of trombones or a baritone saxophone, he put those guys to work. The drummer he played with throughout most of his career is a guy by the name of Danny Richmond. Richmond originally played sax, but Mingus thought he would make a better drummer. Clearly, I was not there when Richmond learned how to become a drummer, but his drumming is so locked in with Mingus's demeanor and humor and soul that it's hard to believe that Richmond and Mingus aren't connected to the same brain. It stands to reason that he played everything the way Mingus wanted him to play. My favorite song in the record is called Farwell's Mill Valley. It sounds like a little suite of songs, actually. There's some Latin rhythms in there, there are some sounds that remind me of the original Planet of the Apes movie that came out about a decade after this. There's just a whole stew of things going on. Mingus Dynasty is a great album. I suppose The Shoes of the Fisherman's Wife was, too. Though I think it might be difficult to track that one down these days. But it's the least great of the four albums that Mingus recorded in 1959. 
which is what we're going to focus on in this episode. As popular music has evolved, you're lucky if your favorite artists release an album every year or two. Now, it's not uncommon if an artist is out of the spotlight for three, four years at a time. In the 70s and 80s, every year or so is more the rule than the exception. In the 60s, the Beatles and Rolling Stones would release a couple of albums every year. Bob Dylan had an amazing run in 1965 and 1966 when he released three of his greatest albums over the course of 18 months. Creedence Clearwater Revival kind of set the bar for excellence in rock and roll music when they released three pretty great albums in 1969. Well, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, it's not uncommon that jazz legends record three or four albums worth of material in a matter of days or weeks. Charles Mingus recorded four stellar albums in 1959, perhaps the most pivotal year in all of jazz history, where artistry met innovation, creativity, accessibility, and popularity. For the 80th time, Miles Davis recorded Kind of Blue. John Coltrane recorded Giant Steps. Dave Brubeck released Time Out. And Ornette Coleman shook the jazz world up with an album called The Shape of Jazz to Come. But it was Mingus who recorded four albums of the highest degree who may have won the year. Charles Mingus grew up in the Watts area of Los Angeles in the 1920s and 1930s. His stepmother only allowed church-related music in the home, but he soon discovered the music of Duke Ellington. He originally studied trombone and cello. Obviously, his prowess on the cello translated well when he found himself playing bass in a swing band in the late 30s. Beginning in his teen years, he started writing advanced compositions similar to the orchestrated jazz music popularized by Miles Davis with his Birth of the Cool album. He gained a reputation as a bass prodigy. In his late teens, according to his memoir, he practiced with Art Tatum, arguably one of the greatest piano players in the world. By 1943, he toured with the first legend he would play gigs with, Louis Armstrong. In the late 40s, he played in Lionel Hampton's band, and they recorded some of his compositions. In the early 50s, Mingus played gigs with Charlie Parker, Tatum, and even joined Duke Ellington's orchestra for a short time. He played with a number of his legendary contemporaries on several occasions as well, showing up on some early Miles Davis tracks, playing gigs with Thelonious Monk, and forming a trio with the great pianist Bud Powell. When it had been decided to have a summit of the greatest musicians in the world to play a live show in Toronto, Mingus played bass along with Bird on alto sax, Diz on trumpet, Bud Powell on piano, and Max Roach on drums. Mingus and Roach recorded the concert, called Jazz at Massey Hall, in 1953 for their record label, Debut Records. It has been dubbed the greatest concert ever. According to my years, it is not the greatest concert ever. However, I would be remiss in my duties if I did not tell you that it existed. As I stated in the introductory episode, all the best players ended up playing with all the other best players. Each of these experiences helped enrich Mingus's music, and we are the beneficiary of it all. The Jazz Portraits Mingus in Wonderland album is a great test album. What I mean by that is you'll find out a number of things about yourself after listening to it. This album throws you into the deep end of jazz, 
and you will figure out what you like and what you don't. To begin with, it's a live album. The playing is hot. That said, it sounds as if it had been recorded in the studio. The only indication that it's played in front of a crowd is some clapping at the end of the songs. There are four songs total, and each of them are all greater than eight minutes long and less than 13 minutes long. At those song lengths, you can be sure that the musicians are stretching themselves out. Do you have the stamina for it? Do you have the attention span? Does it hold your interest? There are three great bass solos on the record. Now, if you don't enjoy Mingus's solos, you might not be a big fan of bass solos in general. The album opens with a song called Nostalgia in Times Square. This song is jazzy in all the best ways. The opening theme is instantly catchy, something you could hum or whistle after a listen or two. Get out your jazz hands and try out your best Bob Fosse moves. track is inviting, exciting. I imagine it's told from the perspective of someone arriving in New York City for the very first time, blown away by the size and scope of the place, feeling anything could happen. The theme is slinky. It's cool. With the right amount of rhythm, and perhaps imagination, it's danceable. The alto sax solo that follows the opening theme sounds to me like something Bird would have played, which fits right into what Mingus loves the most. Piano, Tenor sax and bass solos are played, followed by a long conversation between the bass and drums, something that happens a lot with Mingus songs. It ends back with the initial theme, and so you start getting the feel for how a lot of modern jazz is constructed. Theme, a bunch of solos, return to theme. That's simplifying it a little bit, but I'm not far off. Track two is I Can't Get Started. This is a palate cleanser, a little calm between the two storms. A standard. John Handy plays some spare alto sax against Mingus playing bass. It's a wonderful song he would return to often playing live. Track three is called No Private Income Blues. After everyone has their solo spot, the main feature of this song is the sax duel between Booker Irvin on tenor and John Handy on alto towards the end of the song. It's another common structure in modern jazz songs, with two instrumentalists trading fours. That is, soloing in brief four-bar segments, back and forth. You will either feel ecstatic by the end of the song, or, possibly like my boss, you might find yourself running away from it as fast as you can. The album ends with Alice's Wonderland, with a bit of melancholy, a looking back, and another bass solo. try to get my girls to eat new foods. I keep telling them that they'll never know what they'll like until they try it. I'm a total hypocrite because I never ate vegetables myself until recently. After seeing some photos of myself, I decided I had to eat better. I wanted to be a better role model. I wanted to be around to walk them down the aisle. 
I wanted to lose some weight, and with the keto diet, I've lost 30 pounds. It's not easy, because that's a lifetime of poor eating habits to overcome. But if I could start eating vegetables, then you could easily listen to this album. This album's chock full of vegetables. It has a lot to offer. Fiery sax solos, a little melancholy, a hummable tune, some elegant piano, and rhythm section conversations. You'll never know if you like them until you try them. Passionate is a good word to be used to describe Mingus. Tempestuous might be a better word. Mingus has been labeled the angry man of jazz due to his temperament on and off the stage. Well, you might be angry too if your father didn't teach you the difference between right and wrong, between black and white. You might be angry if your mother died shortly after childbirth. You might also be angry if you remember your stepmother as a witch, as he did in an interview for Atlantic Records in 1962. Due to his mixed ancestry, his mother, the daughter of an English and Chinese man, and his father, the son of a black farm worker and a Swedish woman, he had yellowish tint to his skin. Growing up, he wasn't black enough to be accepted by the black kids, and he wasn't white enough to be accepted by the white kids. He never felt like he belonged. His memoir can be read as a never-ending search for love and acceptance. Despite his God-given talents and abilities to play and compose music of the highest order, it must have felt like he spent his entire life climbing out of the darkness in search of the light and warmth of love. Self-Portrait in Three Colors, from the Mingus Aum album. It's one of my recent discoveries, a song that probably means more to me now than it did when I first started listening to Mingus 25-plus years ago, when my life had less color. Why did I connect with Mingus so well all those years ago? Outside of the fact that it sounded cooler and heavier than most of the rest of the music I listened to, who among us can't relate to the search for love and acceptance? Who hasn't felt like they didn't belong at least once in their life? His music hit me at just the right time. I call that time my 20s. I thought I knew what love was before my 20s. Unlike Mingus, I'd been fortunate enough to have had the best role models in my parents. What I didn't realize is that what my parents had wasn't common or average. It was extraordinary. Few, if any, of my peers could teach me about love because they didn't know much more than I did. They knew how to hook up. Some knew how to couple themselves for a while. They all seemed to know how the game was played, but few of them at the time knew anything about what real love meant. It wasn't until I was 31 when I met my future wife that I began to understand the complexities of relationship. That love was well beyond attraction. That attraction to someone else merely meant that lessons and tests were to follow. Love is a choice. It's a daily commitment. It's a sublimation of ego and service to another. All of Mingus's issues created big holes in his life, and those holes had to be filled up. Everything about him burst at the seams. On stage, he could make a four- or five-piece band 
sound like an orchestra. His compositions were longer and more complicated than everyone else's. Tracks such as Open Letter to Duke and MDM each had three songs squeezed into one another. His brain worked on a different level, constructing songs more as suites of smaller components. His memoir has been reported to have been anywhere from 800 to 900 to even 1,500 pages long as originally written. Clearly, he had a lot to say. He had so much to say, so much space to fill up, even the song titles were long. A couple of examples were, Oh Lord, Please Don't Let Them Drop That Atomic Bomb on Me, and All the Things You Could Be By Now If Sigmund Freud's Wife Was Your Mother. was Charles Mingus's Goodbye Pork by Hat, the jazz standard he wrote, recorded, and released on his Mingus Aum album. It's a tribute to another jazz legend, Lester Young, who passed away in March of that year, just two months before this recording. I have often wondered if musicians could separate themselves from their music and look at it objectively. I've always wanted to ask Pete Townsend if, when he's playing Won't Get Fooled Again or Bob O'Reilly, does he ever think to himself, Oh my God, this song is awesome. Not likely, I suppose. You play something hundreds of times, I imagine it loses some of that original luster when you wrote the thing. Charles Mingus had an interesting take on his own music. He wrote the following about his music in late 1959. There's a considerable lack of punctuation. The pauses are my own. I hope I can do this justice. My music is evidence my soul's will to live beyond my sperm's grave. My metathesis, her eternal soul's new encasement. Loved and lovers, oneness, love, conception. One and one is two, is four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two equals you. Human, human, newman, new man, me, my eyes, personal, private, sacred knowing, the moment of coming together with my creator, or all creations, I as one, knowing God, living his life, itself for love of loving. To do so and living with this, its own life secret in and again of life loving itself, loving of life itself for good and evil. Because it is beautiful to have this life in itself alive, to grow, see it, be it, watch it, love it, and know it is I, and you, that make it so, as we each love it in our own way. And that is why it is that thought came to be in us human beings, that can know if we care to, that we are that secret knowing of the sacred conception, as two opposites and force of love's expression ruined togetherness out of the nothingnesses of empty space and times 
and this our universe of knowing and talking about it. All is where the womb of the creative knowledge lay to all the knowledges of life or death. That is so over my head, I don't know where to begin to talk about it. The best I can do in attempting to understand this is that for him, it sounds like his music is the closest thing to God or oneness in this world. As chaotic a life as he had, that makes a lot of sense. This had been written while he was in Bellevue, a psych ward for really disturbed people. After spending weeks unable to sleep, he demanded to be let in because he knew no other way out of the pressure he felt. Soon after he entered, he knew it was the wrong place to be for him. This short stay took place somewhere between late 1959 and prior to his October recording of the song Lock Him Up in 1960. I think like a lot of sensitive souls, he's not quite of this earth. He has so much difficulty living in this world. He lived with a lot of anxiety. How can we make the world less anxious these days? How can we help those who are struggling with just the day-to-day? Let's not judge. Let's listen to people. Let's look for solutions. Let's be kind to one another. There are a lot of people hurting out there that need our support. My favorite recording from Charles Mingus in 1959 is his Blues and Roots album. It's got some darker tones in it. You will find that if you listen to enough of Mingus's music, he uses trombones very well in his songs, giving them just the right flavor to draw you in. On this album, he utilizes the trombones of Jimmy Nepper and Willie Dennis, along with the added spice of the baritone sax of Pepper Adams. While he rarely plays with enough musicians to have a big band of his own, to reiterate, he makes what few musicians he does have sound like an orchestra with what he gives them to play. The album opens with one of my favorite songs of all time, Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting. Like Better Get It In Your Soul and Slop, as I mentioned earlier, it's a church song. It's a song that makes me wish I'd been born into a family who fell in with a different denomination of Christianity. I mean, the highlights of my Catholic upbringing consisted of relating to one of the readings or seeing a cute girl a few rows away. With Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting, I might have actually felt the Holy Spirit. It's joyous. You hear a lot of whooping and hollering, and you just know it's because they're caught up in the spirit of the thing. Think of the Church and the Blues Brothers movie when they ran into James Brown as a preacher. Just a lot less leaping 20 feet high in the air. I would play it for you, except I got another version of the song I plan on playing in a future episode. Crying Blues is another song that's slinky. There's got to be a femme fatale somewhere in the story of that song. As mentioned earlier, Mingus utilizes the baritone saxophone to great effect in the song, as he would in the next track, Monin. In the introduction episode, I mentioned that Charles Mingus had a song called Monin. That was a different Monin than the Monin of Art Blakey's song. This might be one of Mingus's more well-known songs, based on the hook itself.
The next track, Tensions, is quite vivid, leaving a lot to the imagination. I didn't know if the song sounded like someone sneaking around, if there are men marching off to war, if it's someone being pulled in every direction, or if it's the constant pull of tweets and emails and news and messages. Mingus entitled it Tensions because it's a technically involved composition. The guys were tense playing it. My Jelly Roll soul harkens back to an earlier jazz age, when Jelly Roll Morton ruled the jazz world from his piano. Mingus had intended on arranging a number of old Jelly Roll songs, but he lost the book, and this song is packed with the impressions of Morton's music. E's Flat, Oz Flat 2 closes out the album with some more exuberant jubilation from the pulpit. I'm a simple man with simple tastes. When it comes down to it, I just like catchy songs, and Blues and Roots is jam-packed with them. Now, pretty much everybody you ask where to start with Mingus is going to tell you one of two albums. Mingus Aum, which is the final album from 1959 I'll discuss, and The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, which came out four years later and will be spoken of in a future episode. There's a part of me that wants to argue that there are other places to start. There's a part of me that doesn't want to be told which is the best because a million other people have said it. But I listened to Mingus Aum the other night, and yeah, it's hard to argue against it. It's basically the best place to start for anyone attempting to get into Mingus. I've mentioned several of the tracks already in this podcast. Better Get It In Your Soul, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, Self-Portrait in Three Colors, and Open Letter to Duke. Here's another track from the album called Boogie Stop Shuffle. figure out exactly why it's a better place to start. Is there a difference between the recording studios? Is there a difference in that Blues and Roots is on the Atlantic record label and Mingus Home is on Columbia? Is it merely because there are more songs on there than Blues and Roots? Each has a church song. Each has a Jelly Roll Morton song, which is essentially the same. Boogie Stop Shuffle and Moanin' are equally catchy as hell. It's the same musicians playing on each of the albums. Possibly it's the song Goodbye Pork Pie Hat that puts Mingus Um over the top, but I'll leave that to you to decide. I'm going to finish this episode with something famed jazz writer Nat Hentoff wrote to Mingus while he was in Bellevue. It seems to point forward to a time we all can strive for, for ourselves, for the people around us, for the country we live in, and for the world at large. At the point a guy begins to realize the amazing extent of his own potentiality, He begins to know he's been wasting pain and energy in blaming himself and hating others for things that have been, that were done, that were not done, to himself, to a race, to a universe. At that point, he sees that life, as Chaplin says, is a desire, not a meaning, which is why a rose or a bird has to be. After accepting the sheer pleasure of walking and breathing, and seeing a sky, then the question of meaning arises. For me, a man's meaning, the reason he has to keep on living, 
is that were he to live thousands of years, he would never fulfill all his possibilities, never communicate or create all he is capable of. So he must use what time he has creating now for the future and utilize the past only to help the future, not as a razor strap for guilts and fears that inhibit his very being, or like it said at the end of a labor union song I liked as a kid. What I mean is, take it easy, but take it. God bless you. All my love, Chris. And that's Charles Mingus. I really feel like I've got a deep soul connection with him, seeing as we are both fat, angry, obsessive-compulsive perfectionists. I've also got to say, I giggle a little bit every time I say his name. Mingus. Mingus. <laughs> Which comes up a lot, because he used his last name in the title of so, so many of his albums. There's even one called Mingus, 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 Mingus which reminds me a lot of that old English trick sentence, Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. Chris has a list for you of Charles Mingus listening recommendations. 1959's Jazz Portraits, Mingus in Wonderland. 1960's Blues and Roots. 1959's Mingus Aum. 1960's Mingus Dynasty. 1972's Let My Children Hear Music. Chris would also be remiss if he didn't mention 1956's, uh, Chris, you had to do this one to me, Pithecanthropus Erectus, and 1957's The Clown. I cannot believe that second to last one was not called Mingus Erectus. Pick any of those and give them a listen. They're all fantastic albums. Chris also wanted to mention the Reddit thread, How to Build the Charles Mingus Collection, which you can search for or follow the link in the show notes. Please get in touch with us and let us know what you think. The website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ, short for Audio Judo Does Jazz, uh, facebook.com forward slash Audio Judo Does Jazz, and Twitter, we're at Audio Judo Jazz. Or you can email jazz at audiojudo.com, or for a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email chris at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more at audiojudo.com. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk at you next time. Music